Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. If you're just joining us this morning, it's your first Sunday with us, whether online or in person, welcome. It's so good to have you. We are a church that has a history of preaching through the Bible. What does that mean, expository preaching? It means we're, we're studying Nehemiah, and so we're doing Nehemiah 8 today, which means, can anybody guess what, where we might be next week? Nehemiah, say nine. It's a, okay, good, yeah, you got it. And so that doesn't mean we start in Genesis and go till we run out of breath. It does mean that as the Lord leads and prompts and lays on the heart where we're going, um, we hang out in a book for a while. 90% of what happens in this pulpit is expository preaching, which means we let the text, to the best of our ability, speak for itself because we think that's the best way to equip us, each one of us, to study God's Word ourselves. It's a wonderful time. So if you're just joining us, uh, by the way, just a side note here, if it's your first or second visit, please, please use that envelope uh, in the pew in front of you. If you don't see one, grab one on the way out. Just give me your name and, and maybe an email or a phone number so I can just follow up. I won't harass you. I just want to find out about your visit here today, why out of all the great places to worship in this area you chose to join us this morning, we're delighted to have you with us. By way of review... Nehemiah is, was captive in Babylon and found out that Jerusalem was in ruins and asked the king Artaxerxes if he could go back and rebuild the wall and rebuild the city. And because he framed it as a construction project and connected it to the land of his fathers, Artaxerxes was so inclined. And Artaxerxes had already let Ezra go and we had seen some factions had already gone back to Jerusalem and taken care of this little thing and that little thing, but there wasn't a lot of momentum. Well, in chapters 6 and 7, we discovered that the wall had been rebuilt. In fact, the task that invited the snarl and the derision of the enemy nations and families around Jerusalem had been completed in, does anybody remember how many days? 52 days, very good, 52 days, a marvel of construction, ancient or modern. Nothing had prospered that the enemy had tried to launch at them, and it wasn't because, even though Nehemiah was a fantastic leader, and there are a lot of leadership qualities we can take from Nehemiah, that's not the series, but there are a lot of things we can take from Nehemiah that are helpful to, for us today. But even though he was a good leader, the reason the enemy's work didn't prosper was because the Lord prevented it. The Lord is in charge. The Lord is in charge. And the enemy has been trying, as a side note here, for the centuries to destroy the church of the living God. And his work hasn't prospered. Sure, the church has gotten distracted and off message at times. But praise God, the church is the bride of Christ. And the Lord fights for us. The enemy had uh, jeered and threatened and sent opposition by way of confusion and scandal and compromise and division. And those darts were quenched, stopped, and exposed for what they were. Nehemiah is a competent leader, but it's the Lord who's in charge. Now, he's done logistics management, and now he's moving to leading people. Listen carefully. Uh, if you're in leadership in an organization, 
I want to remind you, you, you don't manage people. You manage projects and you lead people. There's a distinction. You serve people. You, you help uh, equip people to succeed at what they're doing. So now the work really ratchets up. In chapter 7, which was your homework this week, show of hands, all those that can, no, don't do your hands, I'm kidding. But in chapter 7, you read all those names, like you, you're like, man, I'm so glad pastor didn't ask me to stand up and read all those names as the passage on a Sunday morning. And then you heard Isaac just kill it with the names. You did a good job, Isaac, great job, Isaac. They were out in the lobby, they said, boy, he passed the test, didn't he? So great job. That wasn't a sick joke I pulled on him. I prepped him ahead of time and said, here are some names that you'll have to say on Sunday morning. But all these family names are important because they're people made in the image of God and they're people that God used to do his work in extraordinary ways. I don't know if you want to just glance with me for a moment at chapter 7, verse 2. I know I told you to turn to 8, but just look at verse 2 in chapter 7 for a moment and look at the kind of people that Nehemiah installs as leaders. He says, I gave my brother... Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. You can leave that up for just a moment, Mark. Now, what he's saying here, we already know a little bit about Hananiah, his brother. But Hananiah, this, this governor that's leader, we, we see a man here that is put in charge. Why? Because he's a man of integrity and deep spiritual conviction. We see the importance of putting people who not just have a head knowledge, but actually live what they believe. That's crucial. That's crucial. These are the kind of people we need leading the church today. Men and women and boys and girls who actually live what they believe. And they believe this book. He's a God-fearing man that was set up in charge. And then we find ourselves, after sensible arrangements made to the gates, in the seventh month of the year. When you're reading God's Word and you come across a passage like that and it says, and it was the seventh month, and sometimes they use these funny names, Nisan, and they got these names of months, and you're like, I don't know, what is Nisan? They, somebody said, is it a car dealership? Isaac Paisley's going, don't, don't tell the joke, Pastor, don't do it, I've got to. Because in the New Testament, they had a Honda, right? They were all in one accord? Sorry. <laughs> it's bad. That's it, though. I won't do that again. I'm sorry. Thank you. Six people just left. No, no, no. I'm just kidding. Um, but you read something. It says in the seventh month, and we don't really connect with that. I want you to put a mental note in that seventh month. It's so important in a passage later in this year. Like the calendar was a big deal for Hebrews, not just for Christmas holiday planning and New Year's celebrations, nothing like that. I mean, the, cal the calendar was stoked with meaning with the festivals and things that they were doing, and it shows up later on in our text. As we navigate chapter number eight, I've got five headers for you that I think will help you because they're not just rebuilding a wall. They're trying to rebuild a people. Remember, the goal here is not just to fortify a city. The goal is to reassemble the people of God as a community that worships and obeys God. Does that sound familiar? That's what Grace Covenant Church is. Just a building of a community that worships and obeys God and fulfilling the great commandment and the great commission. If you've got your Bibles there, the first header, I'd have you write out to the side or if you're taking notes today, they're available online as well. For verses one through five, I'd write down this, God's 
word deserves reverence. God's word deserves reverence. They called for Ezra. They said, get get Ezra the priest and tell him to get the book. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 together. So Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. There it is again. And he read it, he read from it rather, facing the square before the water gate from early in the morning till midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand and of the ear, the ears of all the people who were attentive to the book of the law. So there were all ages present together, all ages, like our congregation this morning, all ages present together. If they can understand words, they were present together under the hearing of God's word. The people assemble in the center of the city near what's known as the water gate, and Ezra opens the Torah up to them. Now, who is Ezra? Is this just another name in there? Wait, we asked, I asked that question last night at home, and then we sang through the books of the Bible. We know a couple versions of that song. Uh, the Awana thing recently did a version of it, and that's the one that stuck in our head. So we got all the way up, and then we get to, and we went Ezra, and they were, right, they remembered the name from the Bible. Ezra was a priest. He had already been sent. Now, he was taken captive uh, into Babylon, but then was sent back before Nehemiah. So he's a priest. He's been focused on rebuilding the temple. It's not going as fast or as well as he had hoped, but there is progress happening. Let's look at a little bit about Ezra and who he is. Look at verse 6 with me in Ezra 7. I'm just going to put it on the screen so you don't have to turn back. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses. The king granted him all that he asked, and the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Now, you may not have been with me for every Nehemiah message, but doesn't that sound familiar? The king gave him what he asked for, and the hand of the Lord his God was on him. That seems like a theme. That's probably pretty important. In verse 10, the Bible says, Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Process that for a moment. Here's an obscure Old Testament passage that's the picture of New Testament discipleship. That's it. You have a heart for God a heart to study the law of the Lord because you have a heart for God. You don't just study it, right? You're not an academic theologian. That doesn't help anybody. You're a practical theologian. You study it so you can do it. (laughs) And then while you're doing it, you teach others to do it as well. That's a disciple-making disciple. Now, Ezra, of course, is set apart to teach the deeper things of God. He's set apart as a preacher, a priest, if you will, a heralder of the scripture. But Ezra puts his heart into studying. He studies God's word. He did it. He lived by the book. He obeyed it and he taught it. If you were going to write down just a handful of words, some of you that take notes, and I know some kids take a lot of really good notes because you come and show them to me after service. I love that. Here you go. You ready? I'm not going to put it on the screen. You just have to listen. Bonus question. Pastor D is going to ask about this next week in Children's Church. You ready? Learn it. Everybody say, learn it. Do it. Teach it. Disciple making. That's it. Learn it. Do it. Teach it. That will show up later on a test. 
This is the kind of Bible teacher we need in our pulpits today. And this is the kind of leaders we need in all of our positions today. Yes, we're lifelong learners, but we're called to be doers. We are replicating, teaching others to do it. This is Ezra. By the way, the same goes for us. So Ezra's there. Who are the other people mentioned there in Nehemiah 8, 1 through 5? Who are the other people listening? It said men, it said women, all who could understand, all ages and stages of life. And they stood on their feet to hear the word of God from daybreak to midday, just listening to the Bible being read. Now, I got a newsflash for you. From daybreak to midday was more than an hour, right? It was more than a passage reading. When Pastor Norm preached a couple of Sundays ago from Jeremiah on the New Covenant, it was a great example of of showing how all throughout God's Word, how there was a better thing coming, and all of these things were temporary, but they were obeying the Lord and walking with Him. Well, when he did that, that, that scripture reading had changed from what it previously was. You didn't know that. You don't necessarily need to know that. But when I got the scripture reading, it was uh, a full page front and back when I read that. And, and that's, a, that's kind of a longer reading for us on a Sunday morning. It didn't scare me. I wasn't, like, scared of it. I did hunt the names to make sure I could say the names or at least make you think I knew what I was saying, right? That's part of the battle. And, and, and I went through that, and it was a, it was a lovely passage, and and, and the reading of the Bible is so important. We, we believe that here. But these teenagers, these younger kids, these adults, everybody who could understand the language stood for, conservatively, five hours to hear Scripture read. So next week, we're going to do a biblical church example. We're going to stand for... No, I'm just kidding. Different day, I know that, different age, all the things, but... I just want you to imagine, and how did they stand? After 30 minutes, were they like, I want to go. And that's the adults talking, right? They didn't have phones. Were they pretending to get their phone out and check it then, right? How long is the passage? I think Mark likens his first Sunday that I asked him to read a passage at church. It was long. And I'd asked him about 10 seconds before he needed to read it because our read Jeremy, something had happened. I don't forget what it was. I was like, hey, Mark, can you read it? He's like, sure. And he's like, and he, and he came up and read it. He's like, I appreciate my first one was a page and a half. Let's see if we can fix that next time. Five hours listening to scripture reading. And the Bible says they were all very attentive to it. They had a hunger for God's word. Now, now, you can stand and hear Scripture reading and not have a hunger for God's Word, and you can sit and hear Scripture read and have a hunger for God's Word. This is not descriptive of how worship services have to go. It's just a description of what happened then. But it's worth noting. They loved hearing God's Word. It was a treat for them to hear God's Word. By the way, it wasn't preached or taught at this point. It was just read. That's it. Just the reading of Scripture. So let me just walk you through real quickly some things we believe about God's Word at Grace Covenant. We think it's important. We have guests with us almost every week, and we love that. Thank you so much for being here. But for a couple hours each week, Grace Covenant gathers like this. You say, a couple of hours? I didn't get that memo. What's, well, I'm including our Bible study groups before. 
But around 10 a.m., we gather in this room, a few announcements, and then the call to worship is the reading of God's Word. And then there's a moment for us to reflect on what we just heard. Quiet music played, intentional music played, to center our minds and our hearts on the Word of God. Then we sing songs that are based on the Word of God. Then we read the text of the sermon in its entirety. Inside the music part, because the reading of Scripture is an act of worship. It's read with reverence to call your attention to what's coming next. It's read while we're standing as a sign of reverence. Again, you can stand and not be reverent and you can sit and be reverent, but we do it, we're doing it that way by design, intentionally. Then another song is done that connects that text to the meaning of the sermon. And then the word is preached, it's taught, it's explained, it's proclaimed. And then there's an opportunity after the word is preached, taught, and explained to respond to what you've heard. Now, you respond in whatever way makes sense that matches the weight of the text, that matches the depth of your own brokenness or the overflow of joy in your own hearts. We don't call you down front to an altar, but you are welcome to leave your seat and come to the front and pray if you want to. You may not see a visible prayer team with lanyards or t-shirts on down here that says, we'll pray for you if you come down front, but I guarantee you because I know who they are. We would leap at the opportunity to join with you and weep if you need to weep and rejoice if you need to rejoice and linger if you need to linger in prayer as you respond to the word. And then we sing another song as a response to the word. It's typically a song that gives us marching orders for the week. Listen, we do this on purpose. It's Holy Spirit led on purpose. It's by design on purpose. It is saturated with the word of God on purpose, not because we worship the Bible, but because we're in love with the author. And he has revealed the way he likes to be worshiped and the way he wants to be served. We meet an hour earlier for Sunday school. Well, Sunday school sounds old-fashioned. Call it Bible study groups. Call it community groups. Call it groups. Call it what you want to. Just get here. It's a chance for you to engage the text in a community of believers. Some of us struggle to stay focused for the hour of service that we have. That may say more about us than it does the service. How do these people respond after listening to five hours of scripture reading? No preaching, no teaching. They were attentive and they were hungry for more. God give us a hunger for his word that we want more and more and more. Amen? We need God's word, not as the final word on the matter, as if we've exhausted everything else and then come to it as a last resort. No, as the first word on the matter. We need to get into the Word so the Word can get into us. I love it. You remember it. The second thing I'd have you notice, Ezra opens the book for all to see. God's Word prompts worship. God's Word prompts worship. I just explained to you how we incorporate that transitioning to this point. We can see if the first part was an intellectual engagement in the section we read previously now we see some emotions engaged look with me at verse 6 Ezra blessed the Lord I love that the preacher is setting the tone for worship he blessed the Lord the great God and the people answered amen amen 
Some lifted up their hands. Some bowed their heads in worship. Some put their faces to the ground. Yes, we see an emotional response, a heartfelt response to the word of God. Ezra's leading. Your pastor ought to be a worshiper. Grace Covenant, your pastor ought to be a worshiper. Your Sunday school teacher ought to be a worshiper. You ought to get the sense that they've worshiped the Lord. Your men's discipleship group leader, your women's discipleship group leader ought to be worshipers. You ought to have a sense that your elders and deacons are worshipers, that the people that greet you as you walk in the front door love God and want to love him more and more each and every day. Ezra blessed the Lord and the people responded, let it be, let it be. Some people lifted up their hands. Well, that sounds a little, um, I'm uncomfortable with that. Great, I've got some scripture for you. Psalm 63, Old Testament, before the Holy Spirit came like he did. Psalm 63, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips shall praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. Well, that's one verse. Okay. Psalm 119, 48, I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and will meditate on your statutes. Psalm 134, 2, lift up your hands to the holy places and bless the Lord. Some people lifted up their hands. You see people in this congregation from time to time raise their hands in worship. It is a right and biblical response. It's not hyper-emotionalism. It's a natural response to who God is. Amen? Some people bow their heads like they're not asleep during the service. I see the two of you that are. It's okay. Some people bow their heads. Some of you pray for me the whole service. Thank you for that. Some people bow their heads in reverence and awe. That's in order. Some people put their faces to the ground. This is not hyper-emotionalism. This is not anybody trying to get any attention. It is a right response in worship to the God that created the heavens and the earth that revealed himself in his word. They're not worshiping the Bible, nor do we. We love the Bible because it reveals God to us. That's what makes it precious. God's word prompts worship. Thirdly this morning, God's word is taught and caught. So after the sermon, or rather the text is read, then it's taught. In uh, the end, of, in verses seven and eight, when that was read to you, what you saw were 13 men on the platform, and the Levites are there as well, and they are reading the text again while the people remain in their places. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So here's this group of Bible teachers on the stage with Ezra on this elevated stage. They read it again, which shows they've studied it already. Then they move into the crowd. We're not sure exactly how the logistics of this happened, but it's pretty cool. They move in the crowd and basically, uh, give me a little mercy here, have Sunday school classes right in the crowd. Now you can say they're expositing the text, they're preaching the text, they're teaching. what? They're studying God's word together in groups. 
Now, this is a description of what happened at this day, but there's some inspiration here that we still do in our modern day churches. The word is read, the word is explained, and then the word gets handled in groups. Yeah, this is kind of where we got some of this from. You see it in the New Testament as well as they move from house to house studying. The word was reverenced then and now. The word prompts worship then and now. The word is taught so that it can be understood then and now. We may not follow this exact order of worship, but there's some great inspiration here. Today, we exposit the word in a sermon, in our Bible study groups on Sunday morning, in our homes with resources that help us get the sense and the meaning of the word. Process the process with me for a moment. Ready? It was read. It was heard. It was studied. It was read and heard again. And now it's being taught with clarity. We are kidding ourselves if we think that a pastor's sermon can give us everything we need to succeed spiritually week to week. We're kidding ourselves if we think an hour in church is going to satisfy the deep hunger that God put in our lives for his word. We need to feast on the word. It needs to be part of the rhythm of our day. Some of us need to reorient, reschedule, reprioritize some things. Some of you need to train some of the rest of us to do that because you're doing it well. We have folks at different stages of their walk in the Lord. Some of you know some of the pitfalls like, hey, don't do this, don't, don't try to do that, do this instead. It's gonna really help you in your walk with Christ. That's discipleship. Those aren't secrets for you to keep, that's teaching for you to share so it can be caught. All ages heard it together, it was explained, they understood it and they responded. Your next header for verse nine this morning, God's word demands a response. God's word demands a response. So we're talking about not just rebuilding the walls here, but rebuilding a people. And the only way to rebuild God's people is to start with the word of God. Verse 9, Nehemiah was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Now, just notice the second part of this verse for a moment, that last sentence, all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. As the leaders and teachers started teaching the text from God's word, explaining what God's word meant, the people's tears of joy turned into tears of conviction. They recognized there was a great distance between the way they were living and what God's word was demanding. They recognized they didn't have a hunger and thirst for righteousness as God would have them have as his people. When I was in London years ago, one of my trips to London had me there during the London Olympics. <clears throat> I didn't have tickets, I couldn't go. It's like a billion dollars to even get over there, so you can't, I couldn't go do anything. But I was in a hotel in London right before the London Olympics. That's my claim to fame. I'm not a falconer, I'm not a pilot, I don't, you know, not an FBI chaplain, I don't have much, right? I've got these little tidbits from some travel in the past. But I got on the London Tube and uh, the train section there, and for years, I, I took a picture of something that I saw there, and I had it as my screensaver on my phone because it just impacted me so richly. And you've probably seen the image, but 
right on the platform before you step on it, everywhere on there, there's a yellow line and then there's a white frame and it says, mind the gap. Have you ever seen that? Some of you that have looked at maybe cultural pictures and things, mind the gap. It's in the London Tube signs with the red ink as well. Mind the gap. Why do they say that? Because it's not the same distance everywhere, right? It's not like you can just kind of walk without looking (laughs) because you could be in trouble. Mind the gap means be mindful of the gap between this platform and the train that you're about to step onto. Mind the gap. I'm sitting there. I'm there to go train. uh, I think it was 50 or 60 people on on some training and how to resource their churches. And so we're, we're there for an event. And of course, I'm trying to acclimate myself to the culture and pick up anything and and man the holy spirit just gripped me in that moment because there were some areas in my life where i was professing some things i didn't possess there was a gap i took a picture of that i kept it on my device for a long time mind the gap between what i'm know i should be doing and what i'm actually doing here's what's happening as they are minding the gap they start weeping Godly grief, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Worldly grief produces death. They're not just sad for sad sake. They've been confronted with the word and recognized there's a gap and they need to respond. Now this is where as we study the Bible in context and understand there's some historical nuances here, right? There's a great distance between us and this time. What's going on here? I mentioned to you the calendar matters. Because remember, the leader said, wait a minute, don't weep. This day is holy. This day is holy unto the Lord. Don't mourn and weep. Now, if you read that and didn't know what was going on, you'd think, should they not have repented? Wait. Why would they tell them not to be sorry over their sins? That sounds like a modern day kind of, no, 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 let's just feel good and get everything done. No. Remember, I mentioned to you how significant the calendar was. It's the seventh month, which means that the Day of Atonement is just around the corner. In fact, they should have been preparing for the Day of Atonement. It's a time to rejoice. The Word of God has come about. The Day of Atonement was not a day just to deal with sin, but to cleanse the temple to reset and restore the sacred space. And the leaders are calling the the congregation, if you will, the people of God, and they're saying, hey, hey, it's good that you're experiencing this. And this is crazy. We would never say this in church today. That's why it's historically descriptive. But we're gonna repent later. If y'all hear me say that, you'll see Jim coming up on this side and the closest elder here coming up with that little crook from uh, Apollo's Theater pulling me off the stage. You don't have to repent today. We're going to repent next year. Not going to happen, right? But in this context, they're saying, no, no, no. There's the time coming for that. We've got to prepare for what God has told us to prepare for. Let me just tell you something, though. They still responded to the word. They heard the word and knew that they needed to repent. I'm going to give you a verse of scripture. The Lord kind of just dropped on me as I was studying this. Psalm 30, verse 5 You know this, weeping may endure for the night, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning or with the morning. Now, I've read this verse a hundred times, so have you, when I've been sad. I'm so sad. And somebody go like, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Have any of you ever woken up the next morning and like joy lost your address? Like you were still sad. You're like, I appreciate that verse. I've got it knitted and on my door and tape to the bathroom thing but I'm still sad this isn't helping me it's just making me mad now I'm sad and mad right 
But if you look at the context of where this is going, this has to do, I think, one great application, I would submit to you probably a better interpretation, but let's just stay with application now, is really dealing with the weeping that comes over our sin. You see, weeping, I would say it this way, weeping over sin paves the way for the freedom to rejoice over his forgiveness. Weeping over sin paves the way for the freedom to rejoice over forgiveness. And that's the priests are reminding the people, look, it's good that you weep, but it's time to rejoice. God's people had heard the word, they understood the word, they were now obeying the word, which brings us to our final point this, mo- this morning. God's people obey God's word. You're like, hey, listen, I know so plenty of church people. I didn't say church people. I know plenty of professing Christians. I didn't say professing Christians. God's people have a desire to obey God's word, and they orient their life around obeying God's word. Do they always succeed? <laughs> no, that's why we need grace. And there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ. The Lord knows we stumble, bumble, and fumble. There's plenty of grace for that. But God's people have a desire day by day to be more obedient to God's word, not less. We're not walking this way because of our grace away from God. No, Paul dealt with that in Romans. That's an abuse. That's presuming upon the grace of God. No, we want to be closer to God that I may know him and the power of his resurrection more and more. A year from now, I want to be a year more faithful to God than I am today, closer to the Lord in my obedience and action. I want to be able to say, follow me as I follow Christ, and it have nothing to do with my preaching and teaching and everything to do with my rhythms that nobody sees. In verse 13, the Bible says, On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. I'll be brief with this last point, but hang with me for just a moment. We've covered a whole chapter this morning. Men of God, there's a beautiful thing going on here. The men come back the next day to Ezra and say, we heard it, we understood it, now we want to make sure we do it correctly with our families. Wow. Like Ezra, they had a heart for God's word now. Not just to know it, but to be transformed by it. They wanted to love it. They wanted to know it. They wanted to do it. They wanted to teach it. It reminds me of the men of Issachar that come up in 1 Chronicles. The Bible says of them, they had understanding of the times and they knew what Israel ought to do. Because of that, they find instruction from Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16 and 31 describing the festival of booths. What was that about? Festival of booths. Pastor, should we be doing a festival of booths? Well, we did a little version of that as, as at our house to teach a lesson. It was kind of fun. We constructed a little, and y'all have met me. You know me, the sports, right? And me and construction are even closer. So fortunately, it doesn't require, you know, a, a contractor's degree to do a little lean-to with some branches on top of it to have a little meal out under it to have a little history lesson. So we, we did that, and it was a fun little time. But, but this was designed to remind the people of God of their suffering and what God had delivered them from. It was a time for them to remember that so that they would resist, watch this, a sense of entitlement. See, if we're not careful in 2022, we can become thankless toward God 
and his goodness in our lives and begin to believe we deserve all the good stuff that comes our way. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. That's not how this works. We're sinners in need of a Savior. And without him, we don't even live, move, and have our being. God's been so good to us, and we need to remind ourselves daily of the gospel at work in our own lives, even as believers, so that we never lose that sense of gratitude. Look at their obedience as it plays out in verse 18. It's the last uh, verse there in chapter 8. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. They asked, they said, what do we need to do to respond to this? You told us we needed to change, not more now. We need to rejoice. How do we do that? And they were told, and they did it. Imagine that. They did it. They asked, how do we do these things? And they did it. There's a family in here this morning, and it does a pastor's heart good. There's several families in here this morning that have responded to this, and and some single men as well that have done this in recent days. But the man said, Pastor, here's the situation. What do I do? I want to make this right. I want to make this right. And I showed and demonstrated lovingly, graciously, what I believe a step that would honor God would be. And that man, and it affected his whole family, not only said, I got it, I understand, but about three weeks later texts me and says, hey, it's done, we did it. It's done. It's one thing to, to say amen in a service, it's another thing to leave the building and walk in obedience to God's word and to honor the Lord. Well, If the Bible is not faithfully taught and expounded, the people of God are shortchanged. You see, the Bible's not a collection of inspirational quotes and a resource just to get some favorite ideas from. It is the treasured word of God. It's the self-revelation of the creator and ruler of the universe designed to show us how to have a living relationship with him and to teach us what reality actually is. This book deserves reverence. It prompts worship when it's handled correctly. It must be taught and caught. It demands a response. And God's people are the most joyful, the most satisfied when they walk in obedience to God's word. Are you stuck? I can't help you if you won't read the Bible and do what it says. But pastor, I've tried that. Mm -mm. If you won't read the Bible and do what it says, I can't help you. If you don't fall in love with the author, it's difficult for me. I can give you some practical advice, but it's not life-changing. You need the inworking of the Holy Spirit to bring this thing to life so that you can walk in obedience. Julia's coming to give us that moment. I remember I said the word is preached, proclaimed, and then we have a moment to respond. If we're going to experience a rebuilding, a restoration of the goodness of God in our own lives, if we're going to experience personal revival or corporate revival, we probably need to, watch this, re-Bible our rhythms some. As we have a moment of reflection this morning, 
I wonder, where will you confess and repent? Where will you respond so that you can move toward the freedom and joy of walking in obedience? What schedule changes can you make today, tomorrow, that will set you up to build your life and to build others on the Word of God? Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love your word. We pray that we would be a people that live by the book. We pray that we would stimulate that love in others, God. That our conversations, our conduct, our lives would point to the fact that we are in love with the author. That's you. Lord, we ask now that as we close our service with a song and then a charge for dismissal, God, that we would glorify you even as we leave this place today and go about your work your way. God, that you'd be glorified, that you would rebuild our lives day by day with your word. We bless you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.